Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, and we're going to start at uh, verse 6. We'll read all the way through chapter 3, verse 4, and then uh, I'll read uh, chapter 3, verse 18 at the end of that. And uh, I'll try to show why that's important a little later in our time in the Word. This is God's Word. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or from the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we do impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thought of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Let no one deceive himself. If any among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for this privilege of reading your word. Men and women have died in the translation of this word. Men and women have sought to preserve the integrity of this word through the ages. You have worked by your spirit to carry men along to write these words. You have preserved it in nature, in caves, that we might approach and have what is so easily taken for granted. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit, the one who inspired, the one who preserved, the one who led, the one who worked in history to lead men and women to find the records of your word. I pray that that same spirit would open our eyes and our ears, that we will behold the wonderful things from your law. You are pleased, Lord, as you have done from the beginning to use broken and wayward and sinful men and women in the story of redemption 
to make you beautiful and famous. And I pray that you would do that now. Use your servant for your glory. May our boast be in Christ. May our boast be in your spirit. May our boast be in our God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard the phrase, can we please stop beating a dead horse? Can we please stop beating a dead horse? Maybe you've heard it and you're in uh, your marriage and, and one spouse keeps bringing up the same thing and the other spouse is frustrated and wants to shut the conversation down. And can we please stop beating this dead horse? Or maybe you've been watching a football game in the post-game interview and the head coach of the losing team is uh, in the press room and you know, the reporters are like sharks. I mean, and, and this, this coach, he knows that his offensive line blew it that game. They had 10 sacks against the quarterback. Their running back was tackled eight times for loss in the backfield, and they lost by 30 points. And you know how reporters are. They, they agitate, they stir. And so reporter after reporter after reporter, hey, coach, what about that offensive line? Hey, coach, what are you going to do next week about that offensive line? And the coach might say, hey, can we stop beating a dead horse? I saw the game. You saw the game. My players played the game. Can we talk about something else? We have work to do. But usually when that statement is uttered, it's uttered out of a place of desperation. Can we please change the subject? I don't know about you, but as I read this section in Scripture, th that is kind of in the back of my mind because Paul is still beating a dead horse. That you may not see it, and that's the reason why I had us read chapter 2 into the first section of chapter 3, is because our temptation is to think that Paul is on to another subject, but in fact, it's not. In fact, Paul is still talking about divisions. Notice what he says in chapter 3, uh, verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And he's going to use some, some contrasting vocabulary in chapter 2 into chapter 3 to show that these two chapters are deeply related. As a matter of fact, our reflection quote comes from Richard Hayes, and he said, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4 should be read alongside of 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. The Corinthians are continuing to judge and act in accordance with the standards of this age. And Paul delivers a splash of cold water on their faces, which were burning with what they supposed to be spiritual ardor. Wake up, he says. Stop fighting with each other. You are acting like spoiled babies, not people who have received the spirit of God. If two weeks ago we looked at the unhealthy boasting and the way that it divided the church, last week we looked at unhealthy boasting and the way that it diminished God's glory. They were boasting in men and diverting glory that should have went upward, outward. And so God took issue with that. He says, if anyone boasts, let them boast in the Lord. And then Paul unpacks this beautiful uh, passage on if we want to grow in boasting, then this is how you grow. Well, this week, what is Paul up to? I think it's, he, he's doing one last thing. He's saying your unhealthy boasting discloses your immaturity. It divides the church. It diminishes God's glory. 
And the last thing it does before Paul is going to start changing the subject is to say, look, this is disclosing something that what you're doing by saying Apollos and Paul, that you're being merely human, you're infants, you need to grow up. And so it's disclosing their immaturity. But Paul is a pastor. He doesn't relish in the fact that they're immature. He wants them to grow up. A clue to that is when you look at chapter 2, verse 6, he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. That word for mature can be translated perfect. It can also be translated, as your Bibles do, as mature or even adult. And so Paul is sort of reversing it. He says, look, we do impart wisdom, but the wisdom we impart is for the mature. And since you can't comprehend the wisdom, guess what? You're not mature. And so look at, look at what Paul is doing. And so Paul ends it with the same frame. And I think this is an important word for us. We would think it would, would be abnormal if you planted a seed and you watered the seed and you weeded around the seed and the seed never grew. I'm looking in the room with doctors and nurse practitioners and you do a great service for us as we have children and we bring our children to you. And there are growth charts that you look at and you are measuring their length and you are measuring their weight. And you are measuring and asking us questions about their babbling. Are they talking? Are they scooting? Are they walking? Are they crawling? These are all major milestones for growth. Now, why? It's because living things grow, living things mature. And when you became a believer, you were born again, not by going back into a womb, but you became a new creature, but you became a babe in Christ. And here's the thing. If you think back on your conversion you remember what it's like to be, a, I know I do. I remember being like a new Christian and like, man, like I, I just remember the struggle, like the fight. I, I mean, I, I won't go into, I won't give you my whole spiel, but you remember what it was like to be a new believer. You didn't understand how important it was to be in a community. You thought it was just you and Jesus in your Bible. And then you realize that, no, like, I need the body. I need to be around older people, younger people, different people. You didn't, you, when you sinned and you kind of covenanted with the Lord, I'm never doing that again. And you did that thing again. You thought you were unsaved, right? You didn't fully understand how the Old Testament related to the New Testament. You didn't understand Christian liberty. And so you were probably like me. You pass judgment on things that are not necessarily sinful for everyone. But this may be sinful for me to keep my gangster rap. It may be sinful for me in that moment to keep listening to Scarface and Tupac and Biggie in that moment. That might be sinful for me. Right. But then the Lord gives us freedom, freedom of conscience. But but when we're in that new Christian phase, we don't have that category yet. And so we begin to pass judgment or you had a legalistic streak where you felt like what I do dictates God's love for you 
or you had a licentious streak, oh man, grace is so good. Let me continue with sin that grace may abound more and more, right? You probably thought as a new believer that nothing changes but my soul. I'm going to heaven and God don't care what I do with my money. And then the more and more you read, he's like, no, bro, you a steward. I'm the giver of all things. Yes, you go to work, but it is because my hand has given this to you. And therefore you steward my resources. And then fast forward a couple years after discipleship. And you're like, here, daddy, you can have it. It's a joy to partner with you in ministry. You're a good ruler, right? Or you get relocated to a new city. And before you start looking for the best restaurants, you start looking for a church. That wouldn't have happened when you were a new Christian. You can never not see yourself being a part of the bride of Christ. You enjoy the privilege of repentance. You realize you're far more sinful than you thought then, and you're far more loved now than you thought you'd ever be loved because the gospel is that real. You never grow tired of hearing about that name of Jesus, right? You just, you want to hear about it more. And what about your appetite for the new heavens and the new earth? Don't you want, I mean, think about it. We're going to take the supper today. And in the supper, we come once a month. Think about this. You are one month closer to the new heavens and the new earth every time we come to the table. Does that excite you? It excites you now because you have matured in the faith. That maturity matters. Growing up matters. How did you get there? It's because you've grown. None of us should be content with being babes in Christ. None of us should be content with where we are right now. We should all want to grow more and more and more into the one who is the head, Christ Jesus. And that path isn't linear. It's two steps forward, one step back. Five steps forward, ten steps back. But we're arcing in that direction of being made like, more like Jesus. Why? It's because growing up matters, living things mature. And that's what this passage is about. Paul's going to show us they need to grow up. And some of us, all of us do. He's also going to show us and them how we grow up. And we're going to end on what's evidence of our growth. So those three points the need to grow up. He's going to expose their immaturity. Now, we know that maturity and immaturity is kind of driving this section because if you look at chapter 2, verse 6, he does talk about the mature, but then he bookends it in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, verses 1 through 4, so that it forms this sort of unit, this, this literary unit where he says, look, if you were mature, then you will receive our wisdom. Then he talks about the spirit and some other stuff we'll get into. Then he kind of ends with the same thing, but you're not mature. And so look at, look at what he says. But our brothers, in chapter 3, verse 1, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready. 
Even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When one says, I follow Paul, another Apollos, are you not being merely human? And so we know this analogy that Paul is using here. It's the analogy of an infant, of a baby, contrasted with that of a mature adult. And so please, like when you read this, don't think that Paul has going into the kitchen and boiling some water and mixing some formula and then shaking the bottle and then getting like, like formula wasn't invented until the 1860s by a German chemist. So Paul is actually saying, you ought to be chewing steak, but you're still suckling. Right? He's, you, you aren't ready. You're not developed. You're not mature enough to handle the weighty, substantive stuff. I'm still talking to you about the ABCs. But the other way he illustrates their immaturity is this comparison language. Notice this, the nat- look at verse 14. The natural person contrasted with the spiritual person, right? The mature contrasted with the immature, that Paul actually says that the merely human way, the human way, the natural person versus the spiritual person in 2.15, that's more disheartening than simply saying that they're infants. That's actually saying, man, y'all are really regressing. You are actually acting like your pre-converted state. And then he does this, this Pauline irony to highlight their immaturity. If you look at last week's passage in chapter two, verses one through five, he says, and when I came to you, brother, I did not come to you uh, with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and message were not implausible words of wisdom. Right. So it would look like Paul is saying wisdom has no role, like like I became a fool and and did not apply wisdom as I came. And that's not what he says. Look at verse six. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And so when I came to you, Paul says, I did not come to you in the wisdom of the world. I came to you in a higher wisdom. But because you were immature, you could not receive that wisdom. And here's the thing, they actually thought they were mature. Look, in this letter, he's going to repeatedly come back to them over and over again. He says, how is it that, one of, that you are taking each other to court? Is not one of you wise enough to handle the dispute? <laughs> you see, it, that's a jab. Or, or what about chapter 4, verse 5? Already you have what you want. Already you have everything. Already you are rich. Or what about chapter 5, verse 2? A man has his father's wife, and you have the audacity to be arrogant. Ought you not mourn? Your boasting is not good. Do you see what Paul's doing over and over again in the letter? They think they're mature. They think they have arrived. And Paul keeps saying over and over again, you ain't arrived. You're not there. You have a much higher view of yourself than what is is really being expressed in the community. And that's why I included verse 18. Look at verse 18 in that light. Let no one deceive himself. 
If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. Why is that there? It's there because they were blinded to who they really were. They thought they were mature. They thought they had arrived. And they were deceived. They overestimated their maturity and underestimated their need for more of God's grace. And I think this is important. It's important for us to to, 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 to land here and camp out a minute. I think first this means that we have to really rethink the way that we think about salvation. It is common to emphasize our being saved from something, from someone, from the wrath of God, from our sins. And that is true. God calls you. God loves you. God rescues you through the person and work of Jesus. But please don't make the mistake that that is all God wants to do is to save you from sin and judgment in the future. The next mission of God after he saves you, and I would rephrase that, the other mission of God that is in concert, that is tethered to him saving your soul, is to sanctify you. And salvation happens in an instant, and sanctification will endure your entire life. I think this is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so notice that language. He doesn't say those who were saved. He says those who are being saved. And so, yes, you were saved when you bowed the knee and you trusted in King Jesus, but God's saving work for you did not stop there. He is on mission to sanctify you. And so Paul says the word the cross, it is still wisdom for those being saved. And so we have to reframe how we think about our conversion. Second, maturity does not happen instantly. We believe that this letter was written three years after Paul planted that church in 1 Corinthians. Three years He says, by now you should be eating solid food, but you're not. But think about what's embedded in the statement. First, there is the expectation that you should be growing. And there is abundant grace to bear with you when you're not. Third, I think it's really easy for us to think that we are more mature than we really are. We tend to think that maturity equals knowing the Bible. Maturity equals time as a Christian. Maturity equals not being bad as so-and-so. And those are good barometers. They're just not the only barometers. An overlooked barometer has to do with how we treat one another. Paul isn't talking to the world, saints. This is written to the church, and there is jealousy and strife in the church. 
And so it's not just how we treat fellow brothers and sisters, but we could push that a bit further. How do we treat fellow brothers and sisters who've hurt us? Or who are different than us? You see, that's what's happening. Some like Peter, some like Paul, some like Apollos, and what they're doing is fighting and biting and clawing at each other. And so what Paul seems to say is it's one thing to say you're mature. But Paul says, let me look at how you deal with other saints. That's an important indicator of how mature you really are. How do you treat those who disagree, who are different, who don't like what you like? If your tendency is to stir up division and stir up conflict and to stir up picking up arms to fight, Paul says, I don't care if you memorize Romans. You're not as mature as you think you are. How often do you think about maturing in the Lord? We want it for kids and pets and plants. Do you wake up and say, Lord, I want to grow? Help me to grow. Have you given up hope for others or yourself that you can grow? Don't do it. God's desire is to save you and to continually, by his grace, transform you until he brings you home and perfects you. Are we deceived? Do we need a douse of cold water to get us off of our high horses of thinking too highly of ourselves? That's all of that is in this first point. The second thing, maturity is enabled. How do we grow? Look, this same Paul who's writing 1 Corinthians has also written 2 Timothy. And there he says the scriptures is God breathed. So he's the source and it's profitable for teaching and reproof, that means he's disapproving something, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be complete. And so when you think about the scriptures, Paul is telling Timothy that they come from God. And what the scriptures will do is point out blind spots. The scriptures will push against our sin, but the scriptures will do more than push against sin and highlight things. The same scriptures will also do what? Show you and I the path of righteousness. And so it's all lumped together. And so I think that colors how we ought to read chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. I don't think we ought to read it just as a treatise on wisdom. I think Paul is a pastor and they're not mature. They're not mature. And what he's doing, because he, he longs with his bowels to see them mature in Christ. And so what he's done in the middle is to help us mature. God ain't going to just tell you you're not mature and leave you there. He's going to say, no, if you want to grow, this is how it will happen. And that's, I think, shapes how we ought to read this middle section. It's important to note that there is no command in chapter 2, verse 6 through 16, we get a command where Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 3, uh, 
laying on foundation. There's a let in the chapter at the end of verse 10, let each one take care how he builds. We'll touch that next week. But the next command in this section comes down in verse 18, where he says, don't deceive yourself. That's a command. So why does that matter? What, what, it matters because he wants them to grow. But before he gets to tell them what to do in verse 18, he tells you everything or some of the things that God has done. And that is his way of saying, if you see weakness and immaturity in your heart, don't be so quick to say, I got to go do this. What Paul is really saying in the structure of the letter is, let me show you who God is. Let me show you what God has done. Let me show you how God is at work. And when we see what God is up to, what God is doing, then we respond to that. And that is how we grow. It's not the other way around. And so what is God committed to? What is God after to help you and I grow? What must we know about God and what he's doing to help us grow up? The first thing is there has to be an authority higher than yourself. If you and I will grow, you can't be the authority. And the world around you can't be the authority. It's going to have to be God's word. So, if you look at chapter 2, verse 6, I mean chapter 2, verse 9, notice what Paul Paul says. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. All right. So when he says as it is written in those quotation marks, that's a clue that Paul is quoting something else. Look at chapter two, verse 16. You see those same quotation marks. He doesn't say as it is written, but he does put quotation marks there for who has understood the mind of the Lord to instruct him. Several scholars say, look at chapter uh, chapter chapter 2 verse 10 these things God has revealed to us by the spirit for the spirit searches everything even the depths of God like that that that's an allusion to something else if you look at our text last week look up at chapter 1 verse 31 so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord turn back one page and look at chapter 1 verse 19 for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart what in the world is going on 19 times in first Corinthians Paul says as it is written now that's important it's important because that's a Gentile city, Corinth. This is a, the New Testament church. And Paul, as he argues with them and writes, do you know what he's really doing? He's actually referring to the story that, that's bigger than them. He says, look, have you not read Isaiah? Have you not read Jeremiah? Have you not read Genesis? Have you not read Job? Have you not read the Psalms? Have you not read Exodus? Have you not read Deuteronomy? Paul quotes all of those books in this one letter. Why? To remind them, there is a story bigger than the one that you're living in right now. Our God has been working through the prophets and the judges, and the kings, 
And the patriarchs, he's been at work for thousands upon thousands of years, and you're going to look out a little Corinth and try to get your wisdom out there? Really, that's what we're doing. So when he keeps saying, as it is written, he's drawing them back into the big story. God's word, the Old Testament would have been Paul's Bible. And what he's telling them, you're not going to grow if you don't know this big story. And this authority that is over you. You see, I get it. Why you you go after worldly wisdom? Because you're not meditating on the king of glory that Isaiah saw. Your God is small, but you need to go back and read Isaiah, who saw the Lord on the throne high and lifted up. You need to go read Isaiah, where Isaiah says, where were you? Did you measure the mountains? Did you measure the valleys? Did you measure the water? Has the Lord come to you for counsel? Like if you go back and read these passages that Paul is referencing, what's coming out of that is a really big God. And because they aren't acquainted with this really big God, then this world and its wisdom begins to be really big. But what Paul is doing is poking at him, poking at him, poking at him. And that section right there, Verse 10 and 11, it's an allusion to Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. And you know what's happening in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and Nebuchadnezzar goes to his wise men and magicians and sorcerers. And he says, look, y'all trying to trick me. You want me to tell you my dream so that you can pull one on me. But, but I want to do something you can't do. I want you to tell me my dream and then tell me my interpretation of the dream. And they say, King, you're out of your mind. No one does that. And then they get Daniel. And I'm going to read Daniel's own words because it's going to sound a lot like what Paul says right here. Blessed be the name of God forever, to whom belong the wisdom and the might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. And Daniel answered the king and says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show the king the mystery. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the king what will happen in the latter days. You hear what Paul is doing? If you really knew how wise God was, if you really knew his wisdom, his power, his might, if you could really comprehend that there is an authority out there higher than you, you wouldn't be talking about earthly wisdom and boasting in men. You would be boasting in the Lord. That's the first thing, like, man, there's an authority. If we're going to grow, an authority higher. Paul also talks about this new age that is here, and it is above the age you are in. Now, notice Paul's repetition of age in verse 6. Yet among the tour we impart wisdom, but it is not a wisdom of this age or from rulers of this age, and they are doomed to pass away. 
but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So think about how we use the word ages, all right? I, I, I might use era. So think about 300 years ago, 400 years ago, you would not have arrived at church in an automobile. You would have walked or mounted your horse and you would have horses in the parking lot. That was the age of the horse. If you want to talk about ages, think about before we learned to domesticate animals. You walked and we learned, man, we have power. We can domesticate and train. We can break up a horse and, 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 and use it to help us. And so that you have this age of the horse. But then that was replaced with the age of the automobile. Right. Ages, time periods, eras. And what Paul is saying is there is an evil era an evil age, and it's here right now. And we know it's here right now because they couldn't see the wisdom of God lodged in Jesus. And that era is here right now because they were blinded to the reality of who Christ is. If they had known that this new age has come, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But because they are of this age and they are blinded from God's wisdom is foolish and they live in rebellion, they actually can't see and hear and worship the lamb. But here's the wisdom of God. God used their sin and their blindness and their hostility of this evil age to accomplish the ushering in of the new age. God used their wickedness and their sin to crucify the Lord of glory and to usher in this new age. That is wisdom. That is God's ways being above our ways. That is God using his foolishness to accomplish wisdom and salvation and might. And what Paul wants them to know, you're not in this age. You're in the one above it. This age is passing away. Christ's age will endure forever and ever and ever and ever why are you letting this age define you? Why are you listening to what it says wisdom is when you're not even a part of it? God decrees something before the ages, and notice what it says, it's for our glory. And so God had you and I in mind for our glory, and that's, that's a rare statement. We tend to think about God, God cares about God's glory, yes and amen, but what's also true is God has decreed things, God has planned things for our glory as well. And so before the evil age, God had already decided that he will use their sin and their wickedness to usher in this new age. That is wisdom. And Paul is saying, if you're going to grow, beloved, you got to count yourself dead to this age. You see now 
You hear now. You bow the knee now. Don't let this age define you. And then Paul talks about seamlessly. He goes right into the Holy Spirit. He talks about these ages. He talks about the scriptures and what is written. And then he transitions to talk about the Spirit. I had a chart and I decided not to bore you with the chart. But if you look at 1 Corinthians and look at where Paul talks most intimately about the Holy Spirit, you're going to see 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 Corinthians 12. Now, what's happening in 1 Corinthians 12? That's when Paul talks about the spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit, one spirit, gives manifold gifts. Some of y'all going to speak in tongues, and some of y'all going to interpret tongues. Some of y'all going to have gifts of healing and miracles. Some of y'all got wisdom. Some of y'all got knowledge. Some of y'all got discernment. Some of y'all got faith. And some of y'all, I mean, Paul just lays out all the ways the Holy Spirit manifests himself in diversity of gifts in the lives of believers. Yes and amen. And you know what? That's all they want to talk about. Them spiritual gifts. And what Paul says, before you get to these gifts of the Spirit, let me tell you about the other ways the Spirit is at work. Gordon Fee nails it. He says, for them, the Spirit meant the gifts of tongues. It meant to have arrived in the excellence of wisdom. It meant to have entered into a new existence that raised them above their earthly existence. But it was unrelated to their ethical behavior. For Paul, on the other hand, the Spirit did include utterances as long as they edified. But for him, the emphasis lay on the Spirit's power to transform our lives to reveal God's wisdom, to minister to us in our weakness, and to effect holiness in the believing community. In other words, the purpose of the Spirit's coming was not to transport one above the present age, but to empower one to live as if the dawn of the new age had come. So who can tell me what I'm thinking about right now? I give you five seconds. All right. So I'm thinking about a black vulture that I saw on our steeple this Wednesday. Did anybody get that? Did anybody get it? No one. Why? Because my thoughts are mine. And you don't know my thoughts unless I let you in my thoughts. Think about that. Now look at what Paul says in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, 
Look at verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not by human wisdom, but by the spirit you, you catch what Paul is saying? I just got you. Because it wasn't really about me. In the same way that you did not know my thoughts, no man or woman or child knows the thoughts of God. But if you are in Christ, that same spirit of God is inside of you. And one of his major activities for and in believers is to make the Father's thoughts known to you. You are not living life alone. The Holy Spirit is there to give you wisdom, to give you knowledge, to give you insight to bring you into the very bosom and thoughts of God the Father and God the Son. And he says more, and this is where I think Isaiah is, his mouth is dropped in verse 16. He quotes Isaiah, for who has understood the mind of the Lord to give him counsel? And the answer is no one. But then Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. Whew! That's good, saints. I mean, God has given himself to you. We can see life through Christ's mind. We can lament and grieve sin as Christ does. We can long for beauty and holiness as Christ does. We can be anchored in hard times as Christ is. What Paul is saying is that we will not grow apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The cross has unleashed this new age. Why will we go back to living in the age that's dying? What's our response? Verse 18, that's the command. Don't deceive yourself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. That's Paul's way of saying, if you want to grow, the way up is down. Repent for your pride. Repent for trying to live apart from the Spirit. Repent from loving this age. Repent from letting other things be an authority. And when we have that posture of let me look like, become like a fool, knowing nothing, having nothing, clinging to him, longing for him, in that place, right there in that posture where we are down and we are low and God is exalted, that's how we grow. Growth will not happen any other way. Do you see the word of God is your treasure, Redeemer? 
It is living. It is for your growth and for your glory. Jesus has come to it and sit under it and chew it and meditate on it day and night. You are part of the new age. It's dawned. You're not a part of the world. You're in it, but not of it. You know God. You're known by God, indwelled by God, taught by God, protected by God, kept by God, carried by God, loved by God. God is committed to your growth. The Spirit is here to help you in your weakness, to convict us of sin, to give us sight through the deceitful schemes of the world, to draw our attention and affection back to Christ. How can we not bow down and say, may I be a fool in this world that I might be wise towards you, Father? What's the evidence of growth? I'm going to close with this. How do we know when we're maturing? What do we look for? If you were going to start growing corn for a living, you'd probably get a corn growth chart and put it in your shed next to your tractor. And you would row your field up and you would plant your seeds and you would go to that growth chart and you would want to see the difference between the vegetative state and the reproductive state. You're going to measure up your little seedlings and how they grow. And when this first leaf is round, but every leaf after that is jagged and pointed, you're going to be right. You're going to go back to this document to look at and then to measure. OK, here is where I am. And then when this kernel bursts open, you're going to go, OK, here is where I am. And so here's the question. If we are maturing in the Lord, what are we going to? You're going to a person. And his name is Jesus. And God's goal is to conform you and I to Jesus' standard. And so when we look at this passage, what is Paul after? He is after the opposite of what they're doing. You're boasting in men and not boasting in God. You're dividing the church, not unifying the church. There is strife everywhere you go and not peace. And so what maturity looks like when this word gets in us and the spirit gets in us and we are in this new age and living like it, we're going to look different. We're gonna look like Jesus who wasn't competing with Jeremiah or Moses or Abraham. He was in concert with them. It wasn't competing with the Father and the Son. They were unified in concert in their diversity. What does maturity look like with respect to this passage? It looks like what Richard Hayes says. Real maturity, the real measure of maturity is united and peaceable Christians living in harmony and community. That's my prayer for us. That we will be mature, not in mind and word alone, but in our dealings with one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you. We thank you that you are committed to our growth and our good for your glory and also for ours.
Thank you for your marvelous wisdom, that it was your wisdom before the ages began to send your son to be sin for us, that we in him would become righteous. It was in your wisdom, Lord, to use the folly of this age to accomplish your higher purposes. Father, satisfy us with your truth. Allow us to cooperate with the work of your spirit. Let your word be a formative authority in our hearts and lives that we might grow up into him who is the head, even King Jesus. Do this for your glory and your fame, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our communion hymn.